Hey everybody, how are we all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good, good. I'm also doing all right. Basically stayed up until like one o'clock last night because I was just like watching like just random shows on Netflix and couldn't sleep. Mm. And now I am operating on like four hours of sleep, which is the best time to have a 12 pages worth of notes in front of me in order to talk about video games today. Yeah, excellent. That's the energy you want. Exactly. That is absolutely the energy you want. So uh, I, I expect this is going to go incredibly, incredibly well. That being said, I am pretty excited for today's episode because this is a series I've wanted to cover for a while. Uh, one that I think is often misunderstood. And in order to jump in there, uh, Alex, how do you feel about the fighting series Virtua Fighter? Oh, boy. Um, okay, it is a series that I have barely touched and I find incredibly fascinating and appealing and wildly intimidating to get into. Yeah, that's that's about how I feel about it. Right. Uh, uh, it, it is also super dead, so mm -hmm. getting into it is kind of a fruitless endeavor at this point in time. <laughs> in, in weird ways, it's both is and isn't, because it, there's mm -hmm. still a pretty active scene around it. And if you want to actually play Virtua Fighter 5 nowadays, uh, you can do so for essentially free by just playing certain Yakuza games. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so, you know, you can still make it happen. Your thoughts on it are more or less mine, except I have a lot more of extensive history with it. I've mm. played a ton of Virtua Fighter 2 and Virtua Fighter 4. Uh, Virtua Fighter 4 is probably top three favorite fighting games of all time. Mm -hmm. Definitely the way I heard people talking about when it came out, they're the, like the words best fighting game ever were thrown around. They absolutely were. It's a series where like there's only one bad version, and that's Virtua Fighter 3. Mm. And they went, okay, we will just not do that again. And uh -huh. they ended up making the an incredible game in Virtua Fighter 4. Like you said, it's incredibly dense. I still don't know how to play that game. <laughs> I put so many hours into that, and I still have no idea what I'm doing in it half the time. Mm -hmm. But I do absolutely love it. And I absolutely love the fact that it's a rather bare bones sort of game. Mm. I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit on this podcast before in that Virtua Fighter is a series that's focused on just the pure nuts and bolts of what a fighting game is. Mm -hmm. And then everything else is just there. Right. Unlike something like Street Fighter, which is a more complete package or whatnot. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Virtua Fighter, it's a series published by Sega and developed by the legendary in-house developer AM2. It's part of arguably, it is one of the most influential fighting game series to ever exist, uh, literally introduced a 3D fighting game. Mm -hmm. Probably second only to Capcom Street Fighter in terms of like overall importance and legacy. Games like Tekken owe their existence to Virtua Fighter. And that's not me just saying that. The people who created uh, Tekken have directly cited Virtua Fighter as direct inspiration for their series. Now, as mentioned, in more concrete terms, it's a game that looked at other fighting games such as Street Fighter was doing and said, what if we just made a fighting game that focused on the nuts and bolts of fighting? So no special moves, ridiculous characters, or any sort of nonsense. Uh, put a pin in the ridiculous characters part, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Just, but really just focused on pure fighting. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this resulted in a game that, despite eight distinct playable characters and an admittedly ridiculous story involving ancient martial arts, the Japanese army in World War II, and a cyber lady, <laughs> uh, it seemed disinterested in that part in favor of all of its gameplay. Like, honestly, Alex, I could not tell you anything about the story of Virtua Fighter <laughs> other than <laughs> there is a lady named Dural, and, or Dural, depending on how you pronounce it, and the main character, Akira Yuki, kind of looks like Ryu from Street Fighter. Now, for Sega in the 90s, uh, this actually represented something of an untapped potential, because Virtua Fighter is going to come out and take the world by storm, be incredibly mm -hmm. profitable for them. Uh, and that's going to include Virtua Fighter 2 when it comes out a year later, in 1994. With this, there was an opportunity to explore the wider world of Virtua Fighter, and the personalities of the characters that probably existed within it. <laughs> now they are going to do two things with this the first is that they are going to do the old fighting game standby and go what if we made an animated movie yeah yeah an idea that is tried and tested and usually a remarkable failure almost universally yes <laughs> almost universally although hey at least for the street fighter animated movie they're at least bringing that back somewhat uh, with the most recent trailer for cammy so that's kind of cool mm-hmm now, they are going to have a little bit of a twist with this. Uh, the Virtua Fighter animated movie is actually going to get a video game adaption on the Game Gear, of all things. That's actually a surprisingly good game. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they do really yeah. interesting perspective tricks. Like, you could have, like, far away so the sprites are small, close-up so the sprites are large. Right. Or I think a third mode called Real Time, where they flip between the two as you get closer. <laughs> it's not as impressive as it sounds. No, I would imagine not. So the second thing they're going to do is make a game that's intended to flesh out the main character, main character once again being Akira Yuki, for the Sega Saturn called Virtua Fighter RPG, Akira's Quest. This game was to follow Akira as he discovers his father being murdered and then would travel to China in order to find his father's murderer, all while learning the secrets of Chinese martial arts and maybe making a friend or two along the way. Wow, the plot of that would-be game sounds really familiar to a game that actually did come out. Indeed it does, doesn't it? Kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah, and I, this game was meant to like, just help introduce the wider wor gaming world of Virtual Fighter. It had to be a game, though, about loss and revenge. And it couldn't just be about Virtual Fighter, even though there's going to be Virtual Fighter characters in there. Also, uh... It couldn't just be a single game, but rather just like one chapter, at least a 16 chapter long epic. <laughs> it also couldn't just be a video game, but rather an all encompassing experience. One that would require playwrights, movie directors, a four movement orchestra score. And Alex, eventually it couldn't be developed for its target system of the Saturn mm -hmm. because it could not contain the vision. No, of the director. no, the Saturn could not. And so it was shifted to the Sega Dreamcast. And it's the topic of today's episode, Shenmue. <sighs> Alex, how do you feel about Shenmue? I, man, it, it is one of those things I respect so much and know, is, know now is so doomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I file it away in the same part of my brain with, like, Xenosaga. <laughs> where it's like... It, it, I would even say like dot hack, despite the fact that dot hack actually came out in its entirety mm -hmm. um, of just like, it's too much, man. It is. It is. It is. Shenmue is a tale of excess. 
much like Xenosaga, oddly enough. And before I even jump into this, Alex, Shenmue is one of my favorite games ever made. Mm. Straight up. Because it is so disinterested in being a video game. It really is. That is one of the most interesting things about it, mm-hmm. is that it, it doesn't function like a video game. It doesn't function like anything. No, it does not. And we'll get into why that is like as we go through this. But it's that inability to function as a video game, and the fact that it's just literally somebody getting a blank check and being like, what if I just threw ideas at the wall and see what yeah. happened? That makes me just absolutely love this. And there's a bunch of other reasons why I'm going to love this that we'll get into as we go through this. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I do agree with, because I think Shenmue nowadays, Shenmue nowadays is weirdly polarizing. When it came out, mm-hmm. it was much beloved. Yes. Then it became a tale of excess. Some people said it was overrated. Nowadays, it seems to actually have been rehabilitated back to being a great game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that I do agree with, and I think this has been the through line of this entire series, particularly this entire this particular game that we're going to be talking about, is that it's one of the biggest boondoggles of video game history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, depending on who you ask, this is a game that's going to end up costing around $40 million to $70 million to develop. <laughs> now, at the $70 million mark, that's about $127 million uh, in 2023 money. And oh boy, Alex, did it use every single dollar. Mm-hmm. There's no grift in this game. They put every single dollar into this. They shouldn't have, but they did. <laughs> it's a game where you can do anything, from walk around a shockingly well-rendered small Japanese town, open every drawer in your own house, play old Sega arcade games, find a Sega Saturn and play said Sega arcade games on there, <laughs> feed cats, shoot pool, play darts, Drive forklifts, play Mahjong, play a slot, uh, slot machine, drink every soda you can find, call emergency services on the telephone, call your girlfriend and then awkwardly hang up, pet a cat, buy every snack in a convenience store, even though you can't eat them, spend a ton of money on cats with toys of Sonic the Hedgehog, or even wait in a parking lot for 3 p.m. to arrive, because you have to and you cannot for- skip time in this game. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess also solve the murder of your father and the entire mystery behind it, if sure, you want to. I guess. It's, it's oddly enough, maybe the most disinteresting part of the game. Uh-huh. It's probably also the least complete part of the game. Weird. Yep. <laughs> now, it's funny describing everything you could do in this game, because nowadays, this honestly isn't that crazy in the context of what right. games are now. Mm-hmm. Like Grand Theft Auto and Yakuza, or as it's known now, Like a Dragon, both mm-hmm. have this level of detail in them, at least in some ways, especially when it comes to like weird side content. Like, I mean, in Grand Theft Auto V, they let you run triathlons for some reason. Right. But what makes Shenmue still stand out is its excessive level and detail and everything. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be able to open every drawer and closet in your house. The townspeople in-game all don't need their own birthdays, blood types, and bespoke schedules that they'll rigorously follow. You don't need an extensive fighting like moves list that you could train and master. But you do, and Shinmu is very happy to keep up this excessive level of detail at all times. It's also notable because it's simply the first game to do a lot of the things that we take for granted in gaming nowadays. It's often credited as the first ever open world game. Mm. Which is not something I quite agree with. 
I don't think it yeah. gets all the way there, but I do agree it introduced many of the hallmarks that are present in these games, from the larger degree of exploration to all the mini-games present throughout the world. It's also responsible for the term quick-time events, which mm. is not a good thing. Yeah, well... <laughs> it's a questionable think, thing. It's, it's morally yeah. ambiguous. <laughs> I, I think quick time events are also sort of polarizing and have flipped back and forth throughout history. Because, mm -hmm. like, in, in the age of the first God of War, they were definitely, like, people were pretty on board with them. They were like, oh, this is cool. This is, like, dynamic and cinematic and mm -hmm. fast-paced. Yeah. Yeah, you could do quick time events rather well. Um, or you could also be, like, Oh god, uh, Space Ace or like one of those other old mm, FMV Dragon games. Lair, yeah. Dragon's Lair, there we go. I wanted to call it Dragon Quest, and I knew mm. that wasn't right. Uh, yeah, like, whereas that's literally the entire game. You're like, eh, this is a mm. gameplay model. Which yeah. I guess also should, I should say, they Shenmue obviously didn't invent the QuickTime event. They just simply gave it its name. Mm. And people have cited, other developers have cited Shenmue as uh, a reason why they include QuickTime events in their own games. Right. Finally, it's a fully voice-acted game in an era where that really didn't exist. Every character has their own bespoke voice actor, and they are, are not reused at all. Something else could be a problem. Mm. And, but, you know, they still, like, go through that effort to make sure that everybody has something to say, and will have multiple things to say. Mm -hmm. And, honestly, with all this, it would explain why this game cost all the money in the world to make back in the 90s. It was this cost that would ultimately doom Shenmue before it even got off the ground. Because, Alex, I, I don't know if you remember this from the last time we talked about the Dreamcast. Uh-huh. But nobody bought a Dreamcast. Nope. This game sold 1.2 million copies on the Dreamcast, which is good enough for fourth best-selling game on the system. Mm-hmm. But according to Peter Moore, who was the then-president of Sega of America in 2001... Uh, he said the game could not have made a profit because of the Sega, Gen <laughs> Sega Genesis, Sega Dreamcast limited sales in 1999. Right. I seen some estimates that even if everyone who owned a Dreamcast had bought Shenmue, it still wouldn't have turned a profit. Mm -hmm. uh, something that I find hard to believe because the entire lifespan of the Dreamcast, it did sell 9.1 million consoles. But my point is that from the very beginning, this game was in trouble and was right. basically doomed to failure. So Alex... This is going to be a four-part series. Today, okay. we're going to be talking about the development of Shenmue and like the inspiration behind it. We're going to talk about the plot of Shenmue 1 and 2 next episode because they were both developed at the same time, so no mm -hmm. reason to separate those out. And then the next, the final two episodes are just going to be Shenmue 3, man, because, oh, God. <laughs> oh, Shenmue 3. Shenmue, oh, boy. A game that I have a, a lot of feelings about, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. Now... In order to talk about how Sega got into this situation in the first place, the best place to start is by talking about the man they allowed to be in charge of the entire project, and probably the actual main character of this entire thing. Honestly, yeah. And by the name of Yu Suzuki. Oh, Alex, what a guy. Sounds like you're familiar with Suzuki. I am, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say he sure is a game designer, but... He He's kind of not. He, well, he is in titles. No, actually, he he totally is game designer. He's mm. he is arguably one of the greatest game designers of all time. Like, if you want to say that he's not good at making not arcade games, okay, yeah, <laughs> fair. 
Yeah, I get um, freaking Afterburner. Oh, we're about to get into like his entire history yeah, at yeah. Sega. And he has maybe one of the most amazing runs I have seen. It's he is insane with the level of like what he is able to do and what he does do. And like, okay. mind you, video games aren't just made by one person or at least right, not right. since the 2600 anyways. But these were small teams and he was legit a programmer and designer. He Yeah. And yeah, he, have, having the right guy in charge makes all the difference. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. So I, I'm i going to be very upfront. Just like how I love mm. Shenmue, I do love Yu Suzuki. He seems like an incredibly genuine man who maybe was given too much money to do something. Right, fair. So I'm going to be very, very deferential to him. And I just kind of mm-hmm. want to let everyone know that upfront <laughs> as we talk about this. But to say, but to be very straight up, Yu Suzuki is one of the most important people in gaming history. And when I say that, I mean he's at a level that approaches something like Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm. I'm not the only person who's made this comparison. There's uh, been multiple interviews where they straight up actually ask him about that comparison, too. And he Mm -hmm. has some interesting thoughts about it. Uh, But my point with that is that he's a person that you can attribute a significant level of Sega's success to. And a reason why they would even be in a position to make a game as big and expensive as Shenmue. Now, to help demonstrate this, I'm going to just tell you about what the, like, the first five or six games he worked on after being hired by Sega in 1984 as a programmer. Mm-hmm. These games are in order. Championship Boxing, a game that was made for the uh, Sega's like, first real console, the SD-1000. It was impressive enough. They said, why don't we just make an arcade game of this? Mm-hmm. Then he made Hang On, then Outrun, then Space Harrier, then Super Hang On. <laughs> Right. That's his first five games. Yeah. Now, during that, he and his team also developed the uh, Sega Superscaler technology. He was one of the main programmers behind that, using sprites and dynamic scaling in order to create a pseudo 3D environment that still looks awesome to this day. Mm hmm. Huh. Yeah. So, four of Sega's most important and successful arcade games and also a box game were done by him. Right. Now, I should point out that he not only was the programmer, but lead designer and director of all these games. Because upon being hired, he impressed Sega so much that he felt comfortable to put him in charge of projects such as these. He, he basically just programmed Championship Box and he went, how about you lead a team? And it mm-hmm. turned out to be a great decision. So what do you do after you've made a bunch of incredibly cool arcade games and that by itself would make you a legend for all time? Why you immediately designed to direct the arcade game Afterburner in 1987? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then you follow that up with Afterburner 2 and G-Loke. Or G-Lock, actually, I think is how that's mm-hmm. pronounced. Which G-Lock is so cool. It's just Afterburner 3, but the cabinet <laughs> rotates. It's, it's so rad. It's so good, man. So yeah, let's just make five or six of the most important arcade games in a four-year time span. Why not? Sure. It's at this point, Sega just decides to let him create a new development team. Sega mm-hmm. AM Research and Development Number 2. And gave him 100 people to basically create the next generation of arcade games. So they're like, yeah, no, we do whatever you want to do, dude, whatever. And he's going to immediately be like, what if uh, we make this new chip called the Model 1 that could do 3D graphics and immediately make a game called Virtua Racing in 1992? Which, uh, all right, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so hugely influential racing game that, by the way, is a work of art because you see... We're focusing on the Yu Suzuki designer with this mm-hmm. one. 
Right. We've been focusing on like what he's been doing with all that. We really haven't been focusing on Yu Suzuki, programming engineer as well. Now, when I say that, I, I, we talked a little bit about how he built like the superscalar technology, or with a team, I should say. Mm -hmm. With virtual racing, he's going to really show off his programming chops uh, with this and the fall of virtual fighter. Because after he, the Sega creates the Model 1 hardware, Suzuki and his team are going to immediately iterate it and create Sega's Model 2 hardware, which is incredibly advanced. It's an incredibly advanced graphics chip, as we'll get into here in a second. Now, Model 2 was notable because it was developed in coordination with Lockheed Martin, hmm. which uh, I totally huh. had forgotten about this. Right. Yeah, for some context, Lockheed Martin had, was actually really into developing like you know graphics processing units in the early 90s for their flight simulators. Uh, this was, you know, during the height of Cold War and whatnot, and the you know, mm -hmm. United States Army needed these in order to help train their pilots. And so right. Lockheed Martin naturally helped provide that. Right, and the more realism you can get into those simulators, which have to deal with some incredibly complex models. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the more realistic, the better, and Lockheed Martin was the basically the gold standard for that. The thing is, these were essentially military-grade uh -huh. hardware, in a sense, if you think right. about it. And then, unfortunately, the Soviet Union collapsed, and all of a sudden, you know, budgets got cut, and mm -hmm. these ships weren't necessary anymore. And because of this, Lockheed Martin had a ridiculously expensive chip. Each chip cost $2 million alone to produce. <laughs> and Suzuki was like, heard about them, and went to them and was like, hey, what if we bought this chip from you? And he said, sure, but it's going to cost $2 million per chip. Uh-huh. And he's like, okay, cool. He bought one $2 million chip. His team <laughs> sat down, and they successfully scaled it down to the point where it could do exactly what they needed, but only mm -hmm. cost $50 per chip. Oh, my God. Right? Mm. And what it could do was only be one of the first chips to do texture-mapped 3D graphics alongside texture filtering, as well as display up to 300,000 polygons at once on screen. Wow. And this is for something from 1992. Like, this right. is incredibly impressive. This is ridiculously powerful. Ridiculously powerful, something you could put into arcade machines and sell at an incredible markup. Because arcade machines sell for like 800 to 1,000 bucks. Mm -hmm. And you're putting a $50 chip in there. <laughs> right. Like, that is an amazing markup on that. Mm -hmm. And so they entered a partnership with Lockheed Martin, and this proved to be incredibly profitable for Sega. Now, my point with all of this, as long-winded as it is, is that Yu Suzuki could do it all and do so in a way that made Sega all of the money in the world. Mm -hmm. This man could literally do no wrong. And after all of this, he's just going to prove it again in 1993 with Virtua Fighter. Right. Now, we've already touched upon why this game was important. But one fact that we left out is that since this is a fighting game, that heavily encouraged replayability. Because of that, it had a much longer and subsequently more profitable presence in arcades. This replayability also meant it was ripe for ports to home consoles, which mm -hmm. Sega was certainly known for already doing that with their, like, by putting their arcade hits on consoles. Right. The Sega Mega Drive, the Genesis, was literally made with that in mind. These games often were not well-received, largely due to the fact they're arcade games. Mm-hmm. They often emphasize difficulty and spectacle over pure gameplay. Right. Whereas Virtual Fighter was, well, definitely still emphasized spectacle, was something that had a bigger emphasis on replayability. Like, it found success on the Saturn, of all things, one of the few right. ones that system actually mm -hmm. ever had. 
Right, because fighting games are inherently, a lot of the money comes from people replaying them, not because of the difficulty, but because of the depth of the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it also was a game that really showed that Yu Suzuki had an eye for detail. Mm-hmm. Because we sort of touched upon this and that Virtual Fighter was just nuts and bolts fighting, right? Right. And so one of the things about that is that it tried to incorporate as many real martial arts styles and moves and make them as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, while Virtual Fighter was an incredible game, it did get some criticism for how these moves and styles were perceived. Specifically, they sometimes were a bit unrealistic. Mm. Now, it is in a good way to show how Suzuki really took this to heart and show his level of detail. He took this criticism and was like, okay, I'm going to address this the only way I know how. <laughs> by traveling to China in order to get yep. my ass kicked by various martial arts masters over like a two-month period. Yep, that's there it is. Yep. So... This is where we finally start getting into more of the Shenmue part of this. Uh-huh. Because how this even begins is that during the development of Virtual Fighter 2, Yu Suzuki is like, I need to go to China. Mm-hmm. Now, he ended up calling up one of his friends uh, who, uh, I believe, was he actually working at AM2 now or later? It, it doesn't really matter. His name was Kazunari Uchida. Who's, he's going to basically put together a blog to like, basically talk about their travels, and that's where a lot of this information is going to come from. Mm-hmm. But he literally just called him up while I... Oh, yeah, he definitely wasn't in AM2 right now because he was writing for like a racing magazine and like oh. Chris participating in like you know like Outback races and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, hey, you want to go to China with me? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, rad, sure. <laughs> so they ended up like traveling to China uh, in order to study these martial arts moves, uh, because the Virtual Fighter, with his emphasis on martial arts and whatnot, naturally mm-hmm. had a lot of characters who either used Chinese martial arts or had Chinese backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, one particular martial art that Yu Suzuki absolutely loved was a martial art called Baji Zhen. Uh, have you ever heard of that, by the way? Uh, I don't think so. Baji Zhen is a martial arts style that's actually used by Ikira in Virtual Fighter. Mm-hmm. It's known for being an especially up-close fighting style that focuses on quick movements, specifically mm-hmm. strikes with the elbows and shoulders. Uh, it's known for basically very powerful short movements. Mm. Something that looks like very, very good on screen, for instance. Right. It's unknown how long Baji Jin has actually been around. We know that the earliest known practitioner is a man named Wu Zhang, who lived in the 18th century in Minkun. It's likely he's not the first practitioner, and there's mm-hmm. multiple theories about where this style ultimately came from. But regardless, it gained a ton of popularity in the late 20th century, particularly after it was featured in a little-known movie called The Matrix. <laughs> ah. Yeah. And it was later used as the main fighting style for the Fire Nation in Avatar, The Last Airbender. Okay. But before all of that, or I guess in conjunction with The Matrix, because you know this is going to be roughly... Well, no, actually, right. no. This actually would be before The Matrix, because it's yeah. a virtual fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yu Suzuki, legend that he is, made it the main character's fighting style in Virtua Fighter. So, getting back to this trip, Suzuki and Uchida go to China. They travel over 10,000 kilometers via train to various temples, interviewing various kung fu masters, seeing demonstrations, and basically 
multiple pictures of Yu Suzuki are taken of him getting his ass kicked. Because <laughs> his, his big thing is like, hey, you need to show me how these moves work. I'm like, okay, right. we'll do a demonstration with one of our students. He's like, well, no, I need to actually know how this feels. Right. And they're like, all right. <laughs> knee him in the chest, punch him. Like, they'll pull them, like, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, you're still getting kneed in the chest and thrown to the ground. And there's a lot of really good pictures of, like, basically Suzuki in various, like, like writhing in pain, like, is he's in, like, an arm hold or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's like you asked to know how this feels. You wanted to understand, like, mm-hmm. where the power of this comes from. Yeah. You need to take the power. You need to take the power. And that man's going to take the power. <laughs> And in fact, we're going to get into one of those as we get to maybe what's the highlight for his trip. Mm. When Suzuki goes to Mikun and he meets Master Wu Lanzi, the master of Baji Zhen. Now, there's a funny story here where Suzuki convinces Master Wu to give him a personal demonstration of this martial art. And by demonstration, Master Wu accidentally forgets to pull a punch on him, or at least pulls <laughs> it too late. Uh-huh. And as Suchita describes, quote, furthermore, a small accident occurred when Yu Suzuki's fervent request to experience the real Baji Zhen himself, what was intended to be a light punch stopping short, actually made contact with Yu's chest, and that alone fractured his rib. Mm. Having been able to truly experience the mysteries of Baji Quen, or Baji Zhen, Yu forgot any pain and was delighted. <laughs> the dude gets punched. He actually falls and hits his head. Oh my god. He's dazed and gets up and is basically like, that was rad. It's so cool. Yeah, he's he's having the time of his life. By the way, they're going to be friends for the rest of their life. Nice. Like, they absolutely love each other. There's multiple pictures of them just hanging out nowadays. So good. It's so good. It was this, alongside going to like the Forbidden Palace and seeing the Great Wall, like taking pictures and reference shots, that mm-hmm. filled Yu Suzuki with a ton of inspiration. However, even more so than getting his ass kicked by Chinese masters was a realization that the understa- an understanding of the historical legacy of Chinese martial arts, the mm-hmm. near-mystical legends that each origins of each art had, as well as the centuries of refinement and passing down to new generations, creating new mm-hmm. stories out of the martial arts themselves. How cool that was, essentially. Right. Like, it was something that couldn't just be contained to what is admittedly soon to be amazing fighting game. Right. He wanted it to be something more. However, the technology of 1994 wasn't going to be enough to make this vision of reality. But with that being said, Yu Suzuki, programmer and person who knows what's coming down the road, mm-hmm. he knew the technology was going to be right around the corner. And so when he returned to Japan, he immediately got his team at AM2 together and told them they were going to make a role-playing game. Now, this is going to cause an issue, Alex. Mm-hmm. An issue that's going to be reoccurring. <laughs> because uh-huh. when his team in AM2 hears role-playing game, they do probably what you and I would think. Right. They think something along the lines of Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy, a turn-based mm-hmm. RPG where, you know, you have mana and you use spells and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. So that's what they proposed to you, Suzuki, when he told him, let's make an RPG. They did this multiple times. And every time, Yu Suzuki would tell them, no, try again. (laughs) This is because when Yu Suzuki says role-playing game, he means literally a game where you fully take on a role and everything that comes with it. Right. (laughs) He is very literal. 
this is going to be the issue because Yu Suzuki is going to do this multiple times. Mm-hmm. Where he's going to give a very literal order. Somebody's going to interpret that with how you would experience that in a video game. And right. Suzuki's going to be like, no wrong, do it again. So this is where I, I, I feel like I should probably try again with, I think I misspoke earlier, that Yu Suzuki is a game designer. As mm-hmm. I understand it, he is not someone who plays video games. <laughs> I couldn't believe this, yes. <laughs> and so this leads to a lot of situations where where a lot of game designers sort of look at other video games and say, how does this inspire me? How can I iterate on this? How can mm-hmm. I bring this genre forward? Most of Yu Suzuki's inspirations and ideas seem to come from literally anywhere else. Yes. And go through zero lens of, like, what is this in a video game? Mm-hmm. He he is designing based on other experiences in life. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's really good that you brought up the iteration part of this. So I don't have this in the, the script here, but this actually reminds me of an interview that Yu Suzuki gave around the time Shinmu came out, where somebody mm-hmm. compared him to Shigeru Miyamoto, the legendary right, Nintendo right. designer. And they talked about, like, hey, you're very similar. Like, do you agree that, you know, you're on the same level as him or that Mm -hmm. he's on the same level as you? And he said he disagreed. And not necessarily because one was better than the other, but because Mm -hmm. their styles are so much different. Right. He talked about how Miyamoto took things at a slower pace and that he would constantly iterate on something. Mm -hmm. He would iterate on it until it was perfect. Mm-hmm. So Super Mario Brothers would have an iteration in Super Mario 3, which would have an iteration in Super Mario World, so on and so forth. Right, right. Yu Suzuki said he finds that boring. <laughs> and he rather, I believe that. He would rather just do something different every single time. Right. Which made him perfect for arcade games. Mm-hmm. He would do Super Hang-On and then be like, I'm going to make Space Harrier. Right. Which is so totally different other than the underlying architecture. Mm-hmm. Shenmue is going to be the first time, maybe Virtua Fighter 2, you could you could say that this is mm-hmm. like the first time, or maybe Super Hang On, but right. Shenmue is going to be the first time he's going to have to actually sit down with a game mm-hmm. and stick with it through the end. Right. And that, yeah, that causes problems. He doesn't iterate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think I agree with what you said in the sense that, yeah, he's not a game designer in that way at all. Right. He, he, not... Not what we think of as a game designer today. Mm-hmm. Although I would, I would agree with your statement that a what I would almost describe as like a classical game designer mm-hmm. from before there were video game templates, mm-hmm. when you just had to get creative people in a room to go, what if this was a game? Yeah, what if we just did this? Can we make this work? I don't know. I don't know. Let's try it. Oh, hey, that's fun. Let's sell it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the very Wild West of, like, the 80s in, like, mm-hmm. 80s arcade games of just, yeah. like, somebody made a ROM hack of Pac-Man. Maybe we could sell it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, like, what if we combined a pinball table and Pac-Man? Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm using Pac-Man for all these examples, but it, it, it gets I mean, the point across. It, I think Pac-Man is actually an excellent example of there was no, there was no Pac-Man before Pac-Man. Yeah. No one iterated to make Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. The, he just said, what if you were a dude in a maze and there were ghosts chasing you? And they said, great, let's put that out. <laughs> oh, it's making us all the money. Now uh, we can oh, do everyone stuff. loves this a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, or like, you know, how Donkey Kong came about because mm-hmm. like one of their arcade games failed and they said, just throw something in there. I don't know. Make, yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. I think, I think that does perfectly encapsulate Yu Suzuki. Regardless, though, with all this, they did put together a playable demo for the Sega's then current console, the Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did this in order to get used to how to develop games for the Saturn. Because I don't know if you know this, Alex, about the Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Wasn't really meant to do 3D games. What? Or be developed for, really. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. The sad. It's so unfair what the Dreamcast had to deal with because of the last, like, three generations of consoles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and all the mistakes that Sega made up to that point. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. The Dreamcast yeah. actually was a quality machine. Where's the it Saturn? It really was. The Saturn was like, the PlayStation's kicking our ass. We gotta get something out there. The Saturn was like, what if we made the ultimate 2D gaming machine? Yeah. And then they saw that Sony made something that actually does 2D games better than them. Yeah. Mostly, anyways. And they went, mm-hmm. oh, also does 3D? Let's put a 3D coprocessor in there. Yeah, that'll work. It works so well with the 32X, which essentially does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, oh god. Yeah, it's such a such a mess of a console. It is. But I will say to Suzuki and his team's credit, they are mm-hmm. going to do some insane things with this. Mm. Now, this demo that they did create is called The Old Man and the Peach Tree. And it tells the story of a student going to a martial arts master and whatnot, or trying to find him, I should say. Mm-hmm. Upon investigating a town, he's led to the old man who claims not to know who this grandmaster is. But upon observing this old man, he finds that he can skip stones across a lake in such a way that every time they hit the water, the stone that is, mm-hmm. it always manages to hit a fish, hmm. leaving the student certain that the old man was the grandmaster himself. This was a successful proof of concept for Suzuki. And so with that, they moved forward with the new game, Virtua Fighter RPG. Now, we've already touched upon a little bit about what Virtua Fighter RPG was about, but to <laughs> repeat ourselves, it's about Akira, basically young Akira, the main character from Virtua Fighter, as he watches his father die at the hands of a Chinese master, travels to China in order to avenge him, and then learns to move on with life. This game, developed under the codename Guppy, was meant to be an 11-chapter game, and by 11 chapters, I mean chapters actually just in a single game. Mm. Now, in order to help tell this story, Yu Suzuki decided this game needed what he called borderless development. Okay. Borderless development sounds nuts to me. Yeah, just the name sounds like a thing that's going to make you go, what? Mm Mm-hmm. Suzuki, thankfully, immediately tells us what this is about. Okay. He means to create a story that is not tied to the bounds of gameplay like most games were. Mm Mm-hmm. What what he means by that is most <laughs> games, uh-huh. most games, like when it comes to having a narrative in them, they go mm-hmm. level, plot beat, level, plot beat. Right. The plot is usually wrapped around with the already existing gameplay. Right. This is going to be the opposite. Mm. The plot's going to be made, and then the game needs to fit that plot. Mm-hmm. That's going to be an issue. It's going to be a huge issue. Yeah. So I can absolutely understand where he's coming from with that. Again, mm-hmm. as someone who I I might be wrong about this, but I feel like I've heard that he again does not 
play video games very much. Hmm. So as someone who is not, you know, engrossed in video games as video games to think that, okay, well, this is a plot driven experience with interactive elements in there. I can understand how that always seems appealing, Mm -hmm. but the problem these things always run into is if you try to shoehorn interactivity into something you didn't design to support it, Mm -hmm. that interactivity starts to get in the way of things. Indeed. Yeah. Like, like it's rare when it actually ever works. And like the mm-hmm. only examples they I can really say off the top of my head that works is the Metal Gear Solid series. Yeah. A series that's often criticized for that exact thing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I can totally understand why Suzuki is doing that as well. But uh, as we'll see, it's going to be an issue. And it's mm-hmm. also going to be a further issue because this is where Suzuki is going to get into this idea of that you need to have the feeling of what this game's supposed to be. Right. Because to help further this process, Yu Suzuki is going to bring in a playwright, multiple movie directors, and a bunch of other ultimately uncredited writers to help him with this process. Uh... I have no idea who these people are, by the way. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted that this source comes from Suzuki himself. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any reason to not believe this. Mm -hmm. But in Shenmue's credits, uh, I couldn't really find necessarily anybody that stood out to me as potentially being these people. So they either went uncredited or they're credited like a special thanks or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the three writers on this game all only have writing credits for Shenmue. Hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. at all. So, I... Go ahead. To be to be fair, Sega games having mysterious credits is not out of character. Not at all, especially <laughs> when it involves people in like mass media. <laughs> the one Jackson, comma Michael. Mm-hmm. Now, it gets nut. It gets even more nuts from this though, because in order to give these writers an idea of, of what they should write, Suzuki commissioned a four movement orchestra suite. That he played for each writer in order to get the feeling of the overall story. He's like, you need to sit down and listen to this first. Okay. <laughs> but it gets better. So, uh-huh. once these chapters were written, 11 illustrations were done in order to help convey the feeling of each chapter to the development team. Mm. So they can get a feel of what they should develop. If this sounds like an absolutely nuts and expensive way to make a video game, you're absolutely correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And Alex, honestly, it's a wonder that Sega greenlit this at all. Mm. And by greenlit, I mean they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Suzuki informed him of his plans, and he started spending money, but he didn't give their approval. (laughs) (laughs) I, oh man, 90s Japanese video game companies are so great. Even some Western video game companies, honestly, because you just have these celebrity game designers Mm -hmm. who have so much clout at the company that they just start doing things. Yeah, yeah. And the company's like, let him cook. Yeah, he's done nothing but good things before. There's no way he's going to do us wrong with this one. Not at all. Nope. This is not when the shoe drops. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's and it's it's just so great that he just like starts doing this. Mm. And as you mentioned, making expensive decisions and telling management later is kind of a hallmark of 90s Sega. Yeah. A company yeah. best known for having individual teams get into very public fights with each other and sometimes <laughs> just completely sabotaging each other. Yeah. But in a short time, AIM2 had been working on Virtua Fighter RPG. 
uh, this was already like above and beyond all that. That being said, it wasn't immediately shut down because, as we kind of mentioned, Yu Suzuki is a guy who's been giving Sega just constant wins for a 10-year period at this point. I think by the time we're at this part of the story, it's like 96, so it's more like 12. Right. And some of those wins are on the Saturn, a system that, boy, Sega was not getting a whole lot of wins with. Like, he was yeah. arguably the guy keeping the company afloat, so who's going to tell him no? Mm-hmm. A question that, Alex, that's going to become a real problem for Sega as time goes on. <laughs> with all this being said, AM2 was going to have to get approval for this game at some point for mm. Yu Suzuki's RPG that isn't actually an RPG to be made. Mm-hmm. And we all know this approval will eventually happen. Obviously, Shenmue comes out. Right. How it happens is in the dumbest, most Sega way possible. <laughs> and in the only way I think to put it, it happens via star fucking. Mm. So, mm. Alex, mm -hmm. I'm going to start by saying I don't know how true this story is. Okay. Because I only, I found multiple sources on this, but they all link back to the same source. Okay. This source does have pictures of this happening. Okay. So I think it's plausible enough, and I also think it's too funny to not tell. Fair enough. So, so asterisk allegedly. Asterix allegedly. So the story goes is that Steven Spielberg, uh -huh. alongside Mark Cerny, who was not working at Sega anymore, but he was just being Steven Spielberg's translator. Okay, sure. He probably still has some in at Sega at that point, even though he was oh, now... almost definitely, yeah. Even though, no, he was definitely working at Sony now by this point. <laughs> wow, this is messy. <laughs> I guess depending on the time frame in 96, it's possible he wasn't working on Crash Bandicoot Naughty, with Naughty Dog, but, eh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Point being, he was translating for Spielberg, and he's definitely in the pictures. He, they made their way to Sega's headquarters in Tokyo to take a look at a bunch of games alongside Sega's upper management. I don't know if this was because Steven Spielberg was going to invest in Sega or work with them or something like that. Mm. Spielberg's always had an interest in video games, and he's actually right. going to go produce a couple pretty good video games like mm -hmm. later down the line. Mm -hmm. But the point being is that he's there. And one of the games he sees is Virtua Fighter RPG. Now, this is the part of the story I kind of don't believe, but mm -hmm. apparently he looked at this game and he just said, wonderful. And this pleased Sega CEO Hayato Nakayama so much that he, he just greenlit the game on the spot. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Sure. Right? This is 100% plausible. It is. I don't know if it's true, but boy, is it so plausible. So I It, it definitely it. could be true. Yeah. And once again, there are pictures of Suzuki, Mark Cerny, and Steven Spielberg all hanging out playing games on the Saturn. So mm. at the very least, they all were together in a room at some point. Mm-hmm. So now AM2 has full approval to blow basically as much money on this game as they like. <laughs> but at first, it just seemed like this was going to be an expensive game to make, not a financially ruinous game to make. Right. The reason why I say this is because, Alex, mm -hmm. they actually completed this game. Hmm. Did you actually know this? Oh, Virtua Fighter RPG? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that I did. No, I thought it got transitioned before its completion. So, 
sources I've read is that it was either essentially done or like 95% there, like needed right. optimizations, but otherwise could get out the door. Right. There's also allegedly 12 copies of Virtual Fighter RPG just floating out there. They were given to various Sega Zex, and supposedly mm-hmm. Suzuki has a copy himself. It's one of those kind of like white whale things. Right, out there. right. You know, Day the Clown Cried, sort of like, mm-hmm. I would Incredible love for... Incredible collector's edition, or collector's objects. Exactly. Like, would love to see this one day, probably never will happen. Right. And we know this is somewhat real, because there's footage of this version that was included in Shenmue 2 as a bonus feature. Mm. And what little footage we saw was, like, honestly impressive. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen the footage that was on Shenmue 2's disc, but it is maybe the most impressive-looking Saturn game I've ever seen. Right. Like, it literally looks like the Dreamcast version, except, like, downscale to, like, the least amount of P's possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, it looks, like, really cool. And it's like, all right, cool. They did it, Alex. Mm-hmm. They made the game. They just need to release it. Yeah. On the Saturn. On the Saturn. And that's going to be a problem. <laughs> Because, you see, they got this game essentially completed in 1997. Uh-huh. And another thing happened in 1997. Yeah? Bernie Stolar was hired by Sega to head Sega of America. Mm. Now, we're not going to go into the entire backstory of, of Bernie Stolar. Very interesting person. But Bernie, to give you a little bit of a background, came from Sony, where mm. he was the head of Sony Computer Entertainment of America. Mm-hmm. and helped oversee the incredibly successful launch of the Sony PlayStation in North America. Mm-hmm. He's also one of the people responsible, as a side note, for being like, the PlayStation should not have 2D games. Hmm. Which, him for that. A lot of yep. really good 2D games did not come over or got mm-hmm. delayed because of him, but whatever, right. I guess. That's, that's a bit yeah. of an aside at this point. Yeah. It was with this success, though, that caused Sega to headhunt him to help manage the Sega Saturn a console that was floundering everywhere that wasn't Japan. Japan was actually mm-hmm. doing pretty good. Hmm. He expressed a belief, though, to Sega to Japan's management upon being hired that was not going to be very popular, one that he would repeat at Sega's E3 presentation in 1997. Hmm. The Saturn is not our future. Uh, apparently, Sega of Japan's uh, leadership <laughs> really, really hated this, but eventually they agreed, and the Saturn was killed shortly afterwards. Right. Now, why would it be wrong to say that Bernie Stolar killed the Saturn? It was, you know, the, the Saturn helped mightily with that. Mm-hmm. It did accelerate its exit from the market, something that's going to be a real problem when you have Yu Suzuki's expensive Epic just about to release. Right. So a decision had to be made, and that decision was to port Virtua Fighter RPG to the hopefully successful follow-up, the Sega Dreamcast. Alex, of all the decisions Sega is going to make, I'm going to posit this might be one of the biggest reasons that Sega is going to exit the console business. Mm. Because here's two fun facts. Mm-hmm. Number one, Virtua Fighters RPG's development costs are going to shoot to the moon after this. Yeah. And two, the Sega Saturn actually outsold the Sega Dreamcast. Oof. Yeah, I actually didn't know this. Yeah, that's so very unfortunate. Yeah, the Saturn sold 9.2 million copies uh, over its lifespan, or 9.2 mm. million units. Dreamcast sold 9.1. Damn. And keep in mind, Shenmue's going to come out in 1999, the same year that the Dreamcast is going to be released. So the uh-huh. amount of like Dreamcast are actually going to be out in the wild, so yeah. much less. Yeah, not 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a monumentally bad decision because theoretically, they could maybe make back their money if they release this game now. It's uh-huh. incredibly Japan, like set in Japan, Japanese game with a very right. large install base in for console that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they definitely certainly could have. The other direction to go would have been to just port this directly to the Dreamcast mm-hmm. as like a launch title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, maybe just upscale it a little bit and like not mm-hmm. redo a bunch of assets or anything like that. Right. Yeah, they yeah. potentially could because it it honestly looks good enough that they probably could have. Yeah, and with the Dreamcast extra power, they wouldn't have to make quite as many sacrifices for optimization's sake. Mm-hmm. Like it, it probably would have been fine, and they could have gone somewhere else from there. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to, and it's going to be such a monumentally bad decision that it should be noted just two years later. Sega's going to pay Bernie Stolar $5 million to go away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're like, please leave. Go, go. Oh, God. (laughs) To be fair, once again, we're not going to get into Stolar's entire backstory because that would also Mm -hmm. involve us talking about the development of uh, the Dreamcast. But he's literally going to get, like, Sega sued (laughs) successfully Uh, because of, like, just some really dumb decisions he's going to make. Great. Whatever. Point is, he's out of the story now. Uh-huh. So under a new code name called Berkeley, because uh, uh, Yu Suzuki thought the name sounded cool. Sure. AM2 started to port Virtua Fighter RPG to at what this point was called the Katana, later named mm-hmm. the Sega Dreamcast. Now, if this was just a port with improved graphics, we probably wouldn't have much more to say. Right. But unfortunately, Yu Suzuki saw the potential of the Katana hardware and the gears in his head started to turn Alex. Make it, make a new, put what you have out and make a new game. <laughs> oh, he's going to do that, buddy. He's going to do that, but more. <sighs> this, this bites so many, like, creative, obsessive, perfectionist game designers in the ass. That they're like, I have this, and it's pretty good, but what if it was more? But what if it was more? The Duke Nukem Forever a fallacy of video it's, games it is exactly that it's it's it could be better it's good enough mm-hmm. you need to make money now you should probably just put it out now no you're not going to okay oh, I guess. okay <laughs> yeah yeah and suzuki's gonna fall into this trap because yeah. you see these gears were gonna start to turn bit by bit during the saturn years mm-hmm. when he started to feel that saddling the game with the virtua fighter name was a bit limiting right Another thing is that Virtua Fighter RPG, this game by itself was meant to be 45 hours long with five Mm. hours of cutscenes. He said that was not enough to adequately tell the story. No, no. It had to be more. Each chapter had to be its own story, had to be its own game. Also, Alex, 11 chapters is simply not enough to flesh the grandeur (laughs) of the story. It needs to be 16. But to make 16 chapters, to add so much more to the game, that's too much for one game to handle. Mm-hmm. Each chapter needs to be its own game. And that game is now called Shenmue. It, you can't. You can't. It's not, it's not going to stay the same in your brain long enough for you to get through it. No, it's not. It is absolutely, absolutely not. 
something that has been proven by Shenmue 3. But... <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, you said earlier that, oh, you should just finish this up and put it out. Here's the thing, though. Uh-huh. They're going to decide to just develop Shenmue 2 almost immediately at the same time, which is going to yeah. cost. Yeah, of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. So it doesn't See, matter. The, <laughs> the thing to me is if both Virtua Fighter and RPG and Shenmue had come out, mm-hmm. I fully believe Shenmue would still be the better game of those two. Yeah, quite possibly. I absolutely understand where this feeling is in his mind. Uh, like, I understand that Shinmu is the bigger vision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you also need to make your money back. Yeah, yeah. You need to continue putting bread on that table. If you can't put bread on that table, you know, you're going to go hungry. You're going to die. Like, <laughs> what, do, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? <laughs> we're, we're sinking the company that we helped create. Yeah, pretty That's much. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> Listen, the fact that we had to hastily exile the Saturn, it must mean that we're in a good financial situation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, Alex, this game is now called Shinmu. And so right. with that, Yu Suzuki made the decision to strip pretty much all of the virtual fighting branding and characters out of it. Mm-hmm. The story now stars Ryu Hazuki a character who is not a young Akira, but rather just a guy who happens to look exactly like him and use the exact same fighting style as him. The main villain, Landi, who to their credit, they are going to do a little bit more work here, is hmm. definitely not related to the Virtue of Fighter character, Lao Chan. He's not related because they took away his mustache. Ah, yep, that'll do it. And so on and so forth. But my point being is that they sort of did the bare minimum to get the Virtue mm-hmm. of Fighting out of this game. You're right. It otherwise still follows the same basic plot beats of, I guess, the opening at this point of Virtua Fighter RPG. Mm-hmm. Albeit now stretched, since Yu Suzuki decided once again, can't be a single game. Right. Speaking of that, it's clear that someone talked Yu Suzuki off a narrative cliff as while this game <laughs> would just cover the very first chapter of the story. They did at least compromise to say maybe Shenmue 2 should cover chapters 2 through 5 of the grand story. Ah, there we go. Yeah, very good compromise. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was ultimately it was supposed to be like four or five games that were going to cover this entire thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should now know that that has since changed. Apparently Shenmue 3 only covers 40% of the grand epic of Shenmue. So that's yeah, changed now. From <laughs> what I hear, not exactly the most interesting 40%. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so with Shenmue 1 only to cover the very first chapter of Yu Suzuki's grand epic, you now have have like a very sharp focus on what the game is going to cover. Right. And with Suzuki once again having a blank check to do whatever he wants, this game is going to get all kinds of nuts. You know, if your company is floundering and rushing out new hardware and struggling to find its footing in the market again, you probably should stop handing out blank checks. I don't care who it is. Yeah, right. You, you should maybe rein that in. You, you have to rein it in. You you have to go up to the superstars and be like, listen, no. Hmm. Yeah, stop. You need to stop. <laughs> we are canceling shit. We are doing anything else at this point. Because mm-hmm. we need the money now. You can still make Shenmue. You can't make it for 80 bajillion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately... They're going to come to that realization uh, well after they've exited the uh-huh. hardware-making business. <laughs> yeah. So, 
You may remember earlier that I talked about how the narrative of this game was written in a way that would not be bound by what was ult- like what the uh, gameplay was ultimately going to be, right? Right. This turns the gameplay game's gameplay loop into one of the strangest things I've ever seen in video games. Fact, mm-hmm. Let's just talk about what Shenmue just is, right? Yeah, let's do that. Because I think this best illustrates like what exactly we're dealing with here. Uh, for Sega, they described this game as the first F-R-E-E, or free, or as it's known, full reactive eyes entertainment game. That sucks. It does, doesn't it? It absolutely does. <laughs> it's, it is like, it is up there with Strand game of like, really? <laughs> the number of parallels between Suzuki and Kojima as time goes on is just... It's oh kind of boy. amazing, right? It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, all he had to do is replace getting his ass kicked by Kung Fu Masters to getting his ass kicked by Special Forces like members. Uh-huh. And like you basically yeah. line up. Pretty much. So for our purposes, what this means is that Shenmue is an adventure game. Right. You get clues that are jotted down in a notebook that you could reference at any time. And you go around town basically questioning everyone until you find a new lead to follow up. And then you repeat. This is broken up by action sequences, either quick-time events or actual controllable fights that use the virtual fighting engine to engage in fights against one or multiple foes. These fighting sequences are a lot of fun mm-hmm. because you're using the virtual fighting engine, yep, which is really, do really good. Now, along the way, you can engage in side activities such as play arcade games, shoot pool, train your skills, take care of kin, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't, once again, doesn't sound out of place with open world games until you play Shenmue and realize the first two or three hours are literally just the investigation part. Mm-hmm. And you don't get into a controllable fight until like hour four, unless you're speedrunning right. this. Then you don't get into another fight for like an hour. Mm. Then the game just throws you for a loop and you get a job as a forklift driver. Maybe another fight happens? Then you fight 100 people at once in a sequence that's <laughs> rad? <laughs> My point being is that this game is very disinterested in any sort of traditional gameplay loop, and I find right. that so fascinating. Yeah, because it's it's it doesn't have a loop. It, the loop has been broken open and stretched over a narrative. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's no such thing as a loop. How can there be a loop in this game? Right. As we've already alluded to, I think even just outright said, this mm. game in general is just disinterested in being a video game. Yeah. There is no reason, for instance, to be able to search every drawer and closet in your house. There is no reason that every NPC has multiple lines of dialogue that change day by day. Like Yu Suzuki's big thing mm-hmm. is like, if you talk to somebody, they should have, and you talk to them again, they should have something different to say. Right. Because that's how people act. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for there to be a perfectly accurate weather system for the town of Yokosuka. That can also be changed to a procedurally generated weather system if you just want to do that. Mm-hmm. There are random flavor cutscenes that if you're not in a specific spot at a specific hour on a specific day, you will miss them. And they are actually important to the story. <laughs> there are some cutscenes that you could only see if you miss those cutscenes that you could also miss. Mm. There is no reason why every character should have an intricate backstory with blood types that, since Yu Suzuki and his team couldn't find a way to fit it all in the game, included a fourth CD that contained all this information for you to peruse. <laughs> it is a game so chock full of absolutely unnecessary and missable details that when you hear this game cost 70 million, it's like, yeah, no shit, of course it did. Yeah, yeah, of course it did. But Alex, my favorite story that I think just 
puts this front and center is mm-hmm. when one of the developers talked about how they made a vegetable stand. Mm. And in order to save time and resources, they just made it a 2D plain texture that repeated the same vegetable. Yu Suzuki noticed that it only had one type of vegetable, so he insisted that they made it a variety of vegetables. Not like two <laughs> or three, I mean like right. a ton of vegetables. Uh-huh. Like some of them being 3D models too. Right, of course. So this developer asked, hey, does that mean you could buy vegetables? And Yu Suzuki said, quote, that would be ideal, but probably too difficult. So being in the background is enough, end quote. <laughs> so the developer then countered, then what's the point in putting in all this effort? To which Suzuki said, because it's not a vegetable shop if it doesn't have lots of different vegetables. And I think that's the perfect crystallization of Shenmue. Yeah. There is no point in searching every clause in your house. But you should be able to, because why is it a closet otherwise? Right. Of course, every character should have a backstory and very specific schedule. They're not people otherwise. Right. This is stuff that is overlooked nowadays for good reason, mm-hmm. because it's unnecessary. But Shinbu is a game about exceedingly unnecessary things, which is exactly what Yu Suzuki wanted. Right. As Yu Suzuki himself would later say in an interview, he wanted the game to follow three principles. Leisure, fullness, and gentleness. It also demonstrates that Suzuki wanted to have input on basically everything, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. And now we're going to get into the definite for worse part of this, as we start to finally wrap up this thing. Now, I'm willing to defend the like the games, like character ideas, and like like all the weird stuff that goes on in this. But this Mm -hmm. is a series about plot lines, and Suzuki is going to make a very (laughs) strange decision when it comes to the localization of the game. One thing that I, I do feel like we sometimes don't like really expand upon in this series is like the localization aspect of all this, because that's very, very important. Right. Yes, absolutely. And this game is going to have a lot of localization issues. Hmm. And it's going to need a lot of localization because it's about a game involving a small Japanese town. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, they're going to start with a good decision. Maybe hmm. their only good decision. The main localizer that they're going to use for this is a man by the name of Jeremy Blostein. I almost undoubtedly mispronounced his last name. Hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of him? I don't think so. He is a very interesting guy. Jeremy is probably best known at this point for his work localizing Metal Gear Solid. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. A game that he did an excellent job with. Yes. Just a collection of crazy ideas that he managed to ground in a like a reality that seemed mm-hmm. believable. And right. really, I think, helped capture audiences and prime them for the later craziness that happens in Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 and whatnot. Yeah. Now, it's a game he did such a good job at that he absolutely pissed off series creator Hideo Kojima. <laughs> and he made sure that Kojima Productions had a localization from there on out and cut him out entirely. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Which is hilarious to me. Now, however, Yu Suzuki like saw this and he brought him onto the team. Mm-hmm. And so, one of uh, Jeremy's jobs is finding voice actors uh, in order to help deal with the localization, as well as you know getting different parts of the script and making sure they get rewrites in order to be consistent and make mm-hmm. sense to uh, a primarily Western audience because he was he was uh, localizing this for North America. Mm-hmm. Now. Suzuki, though, has some ideas about who needs to be cast as the voice actors for this game, Alex. Mm-hmm. You see, this game takes place in Japan. 
And obviously, if it's in Japan, you should use people who are living in Japan as the voice actors, because they know what it's like to live there. Okay. This includes the English voice actors. Right. Alex, how many English voice actors do you think are living in Japan in the late 90s? Probably not a ton. Nope. <laughs> yeah, according to, according to Jeremy, he basically had to cast uh, all of the voice actors in Japan. He literally says, uh-huh. we hired basically every single person that exists in Japan and calls themselves a voice actor. And he literally had to do this because this is a voice cast of nearly 100 characters. Right. And once again, they don't have overlapping voices. Mm-hmm. So you can't use the same actor. Right. Everyone who speaks has to be a different actor. Mm-hmm. On top of all that, the different parts of the script were translated by different people who each had a different idea of what to and what not to localize. And for mm. one reason or another, certain parts of their script would overlap. And uh. these would all arrive late to Jeremy's team who had no time to clean these scripts up, so often they just had the role of whatever they had. Mm-hmm. This is going to create two problems. One, voice talent who had sometimes little idea what they were reading. Right. And two, no time to really do retakes or rewrite a scene to make sense in English. Mm-hmm. Finally, the voice actors also just were amateurs at best. Uh, right. The main character of Ryo Hazuki, for instance, is going to be voiced by Corey Marshall. Uh, Corey's a cool dude, uh, mm. even though I'm about to rag on him a little bit. <laughs> uh, this is his second role as a voice actor. Right. His it, first... It definitely a deep end to get thrown into. Yeah. His first was like a bit role, a dub for an anime show called Assemble Insert, uh, something I had never heard of until literally writing these nope. notes. Nope. And interestingly enough, he's actually one of the few people that wasn't living in Japan at the time that he got the role. Huh. But he was required to immediately relocate to Japan. <laughs> Right, because he'll get the full Japanese resident experience in the time it takes him to record for this game. Exactly, and Suzuki will be there to oversee everything. It'll be perfectly fine. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be great. Corey apparently is like a really good sport about it. He's like, yeah, this Mm. seems like a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, of course I'm going to do this. Yeah, sure. Just get paid to live in Japan for the next however many months. Yeah, that sounds rad to me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I should also say that... um, in Shenmue 3, they're actually going to recast Ryo with somebody who's a professional voice actor. Mm. Corey's going to be such a good sport that him and another voice actor are going to actually participate in a mod that like redoes all of Ryo's lines with wow. his voice. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Future Michael with a correction. Corey Marshall is still the voice of Ryo in Shenmue 3. It was actually Eric Kelso who voices Ren in Shenmue 2, and Paul Lucas who voices Lan Di, who ended up getting recast. Uh, They would come back and do the voice mod for Shenmue 3 later on. Just wanted to make that quick correction. Yeah, because like, and that's the only way I can think of playing Shenmue 3, honestly. Honestly, yeah. And I, I mean that in total seriousness. Yeah, no, it's, that's sort of like a, hey, let's get Kiefer Sutherland to be Solid Snake situation. It's like, no. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I want David Hayter in this. <laughs> Ridiculous. I do, do not, yeah. you cannot substitute him. No. Yeah, so this leads to a game that maybe has some of the worst voice acting I've ever heard. <sighs> like Resident yeah. Evil quality mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. But in a way that it is actually pretty charming. 
Right. So, to be clear, we are talking about the English dub voice acting, right? Yes. The Japanese dub, from what I understand, is apparently great. Of course, because it's like, Jap- voice acting is a huge industry in Japan. Mm. So, like, finding Japanese voice actors is like, yeah, get the regulars who have hundreds of things on their resume. Exactly, exactly. Whereas for the English voice acting, it's like, well, we have this person who is fluent in Japanese, but definitely not fluent in English, but they can mm-hmm. say just enough. Yeah. Let's throw it in there. English voice acting at this time in general is like, I'm not going to say amateur level, but it's a very underdeveloped industry. It absolutely and then is. You, and then you say, oh, they also have to be living in Japan? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, sure. All right. Let's see how this works. Yeah. Whole plan, but okay. I think you're right that we don't necessarily give enough like discussion about localization in these topics because it is really interesting in this time period in particular. Mm-hmm. I think is fascinating oh, for absolutely. localization and English voice acting because it is when anime and Japanese media is becoming quite big in the West. Mm-hmm. But it is more from a standpoint of like, this thing is cool, mm-hmm. but not necessarily like an, an interest or deeper understanding in the West of Japanese culture or I would say mentality. Yeah. So that thing of, you know, he had to, he had to localize Metal Gear Solid is a monumental task, not only because it is a giant script with lots of players and lots of lines to translate, mm-hmm. But the lens of Metal Gear Solid is so heavily a Japanese mentality, looking at the world and the United States military-industrial complex, Hmm. and expansionism and imperialism and nuclear war and all of these, you know, Western concepts and things, but from uh, very heavily influenced by Japanese outlook on these things. Hmm. And so to capture that for western audiences of the mid to late 90s was this incredibly difficult and complicated thing Hmm. and i think shinmu runs into a very similar thing but where yu suzuki is very clearly like laser focused on this should feel like a authentic japanese experience Mm -hmm. put together by people who know what the japanese experience is like, the question then is sort of like, why do you have an English dub at all? Yeah, right. Why don't you just have English subtitles on the Japanese voice track? And the answer is, that wasn't really a thing. It wasn't, no. In the mid to late 90s. Like, the idea of not having English dub for a media of any sort was like, I'm not going to read the whole time. Yeah, there was a real thought that that just, you know, viewers and gamers just would not would not stand for that yeah and like i mean this speaking of like shenmue and sega i mean sega would learn that lesson with yakuza like the first Mm -hmm. yakuza has an english dub yeah and people hate that dub so much (laughs) they do despite some kind of amazing voice acting talents on it Mm -hmm. yeah exactly exactly and like it would take them a few games before they realize oh we could just people actually want to experience this incredibly japanese thing in native language yeah but it, it was it, that was sort of across the board because again you had anime getting really big, mm-hmm. which resulted in these fledgling voice acting and dubbing companies rushing out a bunch of 
very mediocre English dubs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. And not, not even just niche stuff like Dragon Ball Z. This, <laughs> the like original Blue Ocean dub is like famously. It's a famously rough one. Yeah. Yeah. And like the question then to audiences, I think of today and even of the last decade or two is like, why didn't you people just watch the Japanese dub with English subtitles? And like the thought was like, what, you want me to read the whole time? But then we can't watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's amazing to see where we are now with localization nowadays. Mm. Like the like how good people have gotten with like being able to make things understandable to like a Western audience or a Japanese audience, you know, vice versa. Yeah. Like the King of the Hill dub, for instance, in mm-hmm. Japan is apparently legendary. Yeah, uh, apparently. I like the idea of like being able to make it understandable by an audience, but also keep that specific bits of culture in there and not just completely whole hog replace them mm-hmm. this rice ball is a donut now style <laughs> kid like four kids style like it's it's like really amazing like how far we've gotten whereas like at this point yeah like you said it's so fledging and it's also from a bunch of companies who don't really understand or right. trust western companies to do it mm-hmm. right doing, yeah, or like either doing it internally with people who either have a loose grasp of English or just are just very literal, like with Final mm-hmm. Fantasy seven or like, right. Or yeah. Like with like Metal Gear Solid where they do do that. And then Amelia are like, no, we can't allow this. He actually made it understandable. Right. <laughs> no one was supposed to understand this game. That's why I made it. Exactly. It's supposed to be nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. It's very, very mm-hmm. interesting. Regard- Don't worry, everyone will see my true vision when I make twin snakes. Oh god, I hate, I hate <laughs> twin snakes so much. Uh, regardless, by 1999, the game was finally coming together. It was meant to be released in Japan in April of that year. Uh, it's going to get delayed until December. Of course it is. But with that delay, they decide that as part of a promotional campaign, they're going to release a standalone CD called what's Shenmue a question <laughs> still being asked to this day <laughs> now players got the experience Shenmue th- for the first time with Ryo searching the town uh, looking for then managing director of Sega Hideki Kazu Yukikawa uh, basically he finds him and he's like hey yeah Sega's cool right you should buy Shenmue in a Dreamcast even though you're already playing this on a Dreamcast they also, for some reason, decided to demo the game at various train and subway stations as part of the Shenmue subway tour in a game that mm. features neither subways nor trains. <laughs> Shenmue even allowed Japanese broadcasters NHK to embed with the development team for six months in order to produce a documentary about the game mm. and about how it was going to change games forever. Which, not completely wrong, really. Mm-hmm. By the way, you can watch this online. It's uploaded to YouTube by the good folks at ShenmueDojo.com, who also mm. translated it. Which also, by the way, shout out to ShenmueDojo.com, a website that I literally first viewed on a Sega Dreamcast back in the day. <laughs> Still exists today, keeping up the good fight for anything, literally anything related to Shenmue. Literally anything. Yeah, excellent resource uh, that I used extensively for this. Mm. As the release date came closer... Sega and Yu Suzuki were pretty much convinced Shenmue would change games forever. And they weren't wrong, both in good and bad ways. And yet, after another delay, Shenmue would be released in Japan on December 29th, 
1999, and would release worldwide on November 8th in the year 2000. It was released to universally critical acclaim. While most agreed it was a flawed game, whether because of the voice acting or really weird placing, most Mm. agreed that the game was incredibly different in so many ways that it just sort of made up for it. Mm-hmm. Is credited once again as being the first open world game. Multiple developers have credited Shenmue's design as being influential in their own games. And people at Sega would credit Shenmue for helping to kickstart the development of their own 3D games. But have said that even though Shenmue didn't make back the money for Sega, it was so mm-hmm. important for the development of their own teams that it's still paying off dividends to this day. Mm-hmm. Some games such as the, uh, the Yakuza series, or Yakuza series, mm-hmm have been credited as being the spiritual successor to Shenmue, which the creator right. of Yakuza would say absolutely not. <laughs> Even though he worked directly on Shenmue. Uh... It would become, once again, the fourth best-selling Sega Dreamcast game of all time, and it would be one of the biggest commercial failures in video game history. Alex, $70 million is a lot of money to make a video game. It's a lot of money to make a video game. You're going to have real trouble recouping that. Indeed, it was simply too much for this game to ever feasibly make back. Mm-hmm. Much less profit in a way that was going to save Sega's console business. Yeah. Yeah, and once again, I've seen a lot of estimates. A lot of estimates that uh, are literally just like, here's a paragraph we wrote up saying, man, they had to buy this many copies to make a profit. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, in reality, it's not going to matter. Alex, Shinbu is often blamed for sinking the Dreamcast and getting Sega mm. out of the hardware market. I think this is absolutely unfair. Yeah, I agree. I think that's like, again, back to Metal Gear, I think that's like saying Metal Gear 5 is the reason Konami left the video game industry. It's like, yeah, it helped a lot, mm. but there was a lot else going on already. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to help emphasize this, by the time the game came out in North America... Sega was about three months or so away from exiting the hardware market. Mm. Shenmue's exorbitant cost to make isn't why it or Sega failed. Sega failed because it couldn't sell enough Dreamcasts. Right. When people talk about Shenmue's failure, they talk about how it sank Sega. People forget that Sega started the Dreamcast life cycle by selling it at a loss at 199 mm. US dollars. And then by the time this game had already come out, it already been slashed to... $149 because they weren't moving Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. Shenmue didn't kill Sega's hardware division. It just put a bullet in it as it was bleeding out. That being said, it was a boondoggle. One yep. where the sunk cost fallacy was in full force, as Jeremy Blostein described it. Quote, Suzuki was coming off of huge past successes, and he was the man. And so there was going to be the, this thing and everyone wanted a piece of that 70 million, you know? And of course, that's like the worst thing you could do, is to start out a project saying we've got all this money, and then just keep throwing more money at it. End quote. Mm-hmm. Alex, the thing is, and I'm sure this has come across multiple times, I'm so glad they did it. Mm. Sega was going to fail regardless. But at yep. least they failed spectacularly. Like, the Sega Dreamcast is a tale of f- spectacular fail. Failure, yes. right? Yeah. And in a way, that's what makes it so interesting and why I still think about it to this day. It's also why I kind of don't think Shinbu 3 is nearly as interesting. Mm-hmm. With all that, though, 
I think next time, as we wrap this episode up, we should finally get to the plot of Shenmue 1 and 2. Alex, how are you feeling as we wrap this up? I, I, it's fascinating. I, I agree with you. I'm glad Shenmue exists, and I'm glad it exists as what it is. Mm-hmm. Because it was so uniquely ambitious. Yeah. And as much as I think there is difficulty in making a game that places narrative over gameplay loop, I think the attempts to do so are always interesting. Mm-hmm. And always produce something that is unique. Like, unique is not even a strong enough word for it. It is something that is emblematic of its creator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, this has Yu Suzuki's fingerprints all over it. It is absolutely what he wanted to do. And what he's going to continue to want to do to this Mm -hmm. very day. Yeah. Like... I guess we're going to get a little ahead of ourselves. Like, this is not going to sink Yu Suzuki at Sega. He's going to go on right. and still be the director of Virtua Fighter, and that's still going to do very well for them. Mm-hmm. But, like, he, they're definitely not going to let him do much more than that after this. Right, yeah. And, yeah, like, there, there's likely never going to be a situation like this. Like, now that, well, I don't know, maybe Kojima still is, has Ko- his Kojima's pull. still pushing it. Like, He's still Death Stranding 2... Still looks like he he probably doesn't have absolutely unlimited control, but he can get away with a lot. Yeah, yeah. And like at one point, Kojima did have unlimited control. And mm-hmm. then Metal Gear Solid 5 happened, and finally right. Konami was like, you need to take a step back and also leave our company. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, yeah, like you don't really have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's gonna just give some dude a hundred million dollars and just say go nuts, right? For whatever reason, David Cage seems to get real close sometimes. He does, but also, what's he working on now? In theory, Star Wars Eclipse. Oh God, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry. That's definitely never coming out. That's that's never coming out. Yeah, that's just Jesse's not going to allow David Cage no. to do. Whatever, no, they will not give him free reign. Yeah, whatever weird sexually predatory thing that he's going to do in that one, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, we don't have to worry about that. But yeah, no. yeah, I get you're right though. David Cage does get close on occasion. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, the fact that like this exists is just it. It's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and why Shenmue 3 is just like oh yeah it's like oh right that was sort of the fatal flaw of this vision wasn't it yeah you you only had 20 million to work on with this one didn't you yeah oh man like my dream one day Alex is that mm-hmm. like everybody's gonna come together and just give him like 400 million dollars to just do whatever mm-hmm. just yeah no do it man Shenmue 4. It has to be the last one. Yep, you gotta end it with this. But, buddy, do whatever you want to do. As many weird floating knives and mystical (laughs) mirrors as possible. I don't care. Just do what you gotta do. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows, though? Maybe we'll get there, because apparently Shenmue 3 technically was a prophet, if I remember correctly. So, who Mm. knows? Maybe we'll get there. But, yeah. Once again, though, we're gonna start talking about all those plots next time. Alex... I appreciate you joining us as always. Of course. And if you want more episodes like this, you should go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. 
leave us a like and a review. We definitely do appreciate that. Always good to get feedback. And until next time, take care, everybody. Take care.